Welcome to the MS Dev Show episode number 10, the episode where Jason's audio decides to sound horrible. This week, we ask what the heck is IoT, video processing from a phone mounted to a car wheel, and how a CDN can help your site. Hey, this is Jason Young, and with me is Carl Schweitzer, and today we have a very special guest, Carl's Beard. (laughs) You like that one? Sure. (laughs) Okay, so we we got, uh, this kind of a potpourri of episodes. We got a whole bunch of different things to talk about, but first I wanted to start with uh, 20 questions. So I'm thinking of a thing. Um, You can ask me questions, you know how this works, right? Kind of like the yeah. The I don't know if they questions. Have to, yeah, I don't know if they have to be yes or no questions. Right. And maybe they do. Yeah, yes or no questions. All right. Is it technology? Yes. Is it uh, cloud based? Mm, not based. No. Is it the Internet of Things? No. <laughs> um. Is it a device? Yes. That's four questions. Is it the Surface? three elaborate (laughs) (laughs) yes it is you win i wish i had a surface three yes (laughs) no no actually this is my wife's surface three i'm waiting i'm waiting for mine to arrive but i'm using hers in the meantime nice um yeah so i uh i've only had about a half hour to use it and i got to try out the the pen and uh and i got the keyboard hooked up and everything and Right now I'm doing the, the most exciting thing. I'm running all the updates on it. So it says, please wait while we install a system update. And I had this, uh, had this weird issue. I, I, I plugged it in and I hooked up the charger and it said, uh, I went to the power setting or actually whenever I pulled down like the big set of updates, you know, like the day one updates, it said, uh, you have to fully charge your device before installing these, which I was skeptical of. So then I, I looked at the power settings and it said plugged in charging or not charging. It said plugged in and not charging. So I, I did a quick search and, uh, I don't know, for some reason I had to flip over the power connector. I don't think it matters which way it goes in, but, um, it said it was charging. I gave it like five minutes and now I got all the updates going on, but this thing, the, uh, I I've showed it to a couple people. The screen on it is just, is just phenomenal. I mean, it, the screen just looks amazing. Cause I have the X one carbon touch laptop and, uh, that thing just, it looks pretty, pretty terrible. Um, so I really like this thing. That's good. Any other first impressions? Um, it's, it's really light. Although I gave it to, I, I let somebody pick it up that, um, they, you know, they're not used to, they're not used to computers at all. And she mm-hmm. said that it was heavy, but she doesn't really have a frame of reference for what heavy means. This thing is actually, it's a, a astonishingly light. It weighs, you know, pretty much nothing, but this thing's great. Cause you, you hit the, you know, the button on the pen and it pops into one note and you can start writing notes. Um, I'm going to give that a try. Um, you know, normally I type everything, but we'll, we'll see how it works for, for actual notes for writing. My writing is terrible. So maybe, maybe it'll actually improve, but, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think this, this thing is just amazing. So, you know, I'll probably check back next episode and, and see what I think of it. But it, I just love that I was able to turn it on. I logged in with my, my account. It, it did a, you know, start screen synchronization. And, uh, and it all worked good. Cool. So, um, what do we got here? So I was, uh, well, first of all, what have you been doing this week? Um, I have been busy recovering from my previous week. Um, I had a lot of, uh, extracurricular things going on the, the week before. So this week I've just been, uh, kind of chill, 
chilling out in my off time. I haven't been doing a whole lot. Okay. So where I was at, I was out in California in Palo Alto and I was at the internet of things world event, which I've talked about on some previous episodes and, um, out there. So this was, this was kind of a neat event. So we have this, this new term, new term, this, this, um, internet of things. So IOT is, is kind of a new, is kind of a, a new term. And I put a blog post out there kind of with some of my thoughts talking about, um, you know, what I really see, you know, sort of how this is defined. And I saw, I, I dug up some in, neat information. So I found this, uh, these, uh, these screenshots out here quite a while ago of this guy, he bought a house and it had this security system in it from 1985 and it was a full touchscreen and he could do things like, uh, it would, it had all the temperature control with scheduling. It actually showed a layout of his house. It had uh, full control over a security system, irrigation control, HVAC control. I mean, this thing, it, it just ran his entire house. And this was coming up on 30 years ago. This was just an amazing system of its time. And, you know, what I, what I found interesting about that was, you know, the technology has been around for that long, but you don't see anybody with this type of system in their house. I mean, there's probably some people out there, but, you know, if you look at somebody like me and, and you, Carl, you know, we're we're really techies. And if, if this was, if this seemed like a good idea to us, we would, we would invest the money and and do this. Now I have, you know, almost a, a mile of cat six cable in my house. I have, you know, I try to, I try to, um, when, whenever I built the house, I put in tons of cabling. I have, you know, gigabit switch with jumbo frames. Um, I, I set everything up to be, um, you know, as, as state of the art as I could. But none of the, you know, none of the home automation stuff was really where I wanted to be. And it was super expensive. And um, it, it, to me, it just wasn't worth investing in. So what's what I think is happening right now, we we've sort of slapped this label on on things we've called. We're starting to call this whole pattern, the Internet of Things, where we have these low cost devices that are able to communicate potentially with each other you know, potentially with the cloud, you know, there's it, the, the jury's still out on exactly what that communication looks like, or, or if that's really even going to be part of the definition, but we, we hook all these things together and, and we, we come up, we have a, a system that's, that's intelligent can get us, you know, tons of meaningful data. So we could do things like monitor the temperature of each of our rooms and, and also have, um, you know, humidity and, and all of these low cost sensors. So, you know, what we would probably do, you know, if this, if this starts to, to really gain some traction, at least as far as residential, we'd go to Home Depot and we'd buy, you know, a 10 pack of sensors of different types. And we just put them around our house and, and I don't know how they'd hook up, you know, some kind of wireless, you know, Zigbee or one of those standards. So, you know, I was, I was sort of talking about residential and in this post, I talk about manufacturing and, and sort of the context there and how, it's sort of taken off in manufacturing. The technology has definitely been there for a long time. You know, we have uh, a standard called Modbus from, uh, from the seventies where you can do data collection and, and sort of push that to a central location. People are starting to do that. But uh, what I think the conference represents is a label, you know, just labeling this, this whole concept. And it's sort of a fuzzy concept. Like, like when the cloud first came out, you know, everybody had sort of a little bit definition, different definition, but what it did to the cloud was it, it made it so that eventually it would become mainstream. We'd eventually mature our thinking on it and say, okay, it's about, you know, these three attributes. So, um, 
you know, I think that's what's happening in, in the, the IOT world. So I don't know, have you, you know, what's, have you been exposed to this internet of things at all, Carl? Well, I think one really big thing that we're all forgetting is some of the, the smaller things that I, I would say qualify as IOT that we're living with day to day. I know both me and you, we have Fitbits. Yep. You know, these fitness trackers are, are great sensors. They're, they're with us at all times. All we have to do is just give it a little bit of power every now and then. And they wirelessly, you know, talk back to, you know, you know, the Fitbit or the Nike fuel band or whatever it may be. They talk back to the, you know, headquarters, which collects the data from the sensors, processes it and, and gives it back to us in our own time and in our own way. Right. Uh, I, I have an app that as soon as I hit my challenges that I have set for myself, it immediately gives me a notification. Okay. So, um, you know, these are things that we're already living with. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that, you know, it's definitely still a new category, a, a new field. And all these different, you know, possibilities that there are, we're, we're still thinking through, we're thinking through, you know, how can it integrate into our vehicles, into our, into our houses? You know, how can this make my life better? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have some really cool ideas, but they're not really useful. And, you know, you, you need to kind of hit a, a, a barrier where it's useful to a person. It's cheap enough where they'll accept putting risk investing in it. Um, and maybe another, uh, qualifier or two before it'll really start gaining acceptance in the mainstream. Right. But, but in, in certain areas, like I said, with the fitness, fitness trackers, you know, it is gaining steam and we are starting to see that in our daily lives more and more. No, that's such a good point. So I think phase one here was the sensor cost dropping to to near zero, right? So if you, if you actually take apart a Fitbit, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how much it actually costs to, you know, the components in there, but I would suspect it's, you know, it's dollars. I'm thinking, I'm thinking most of it's research and engineering. It, exactly. Exactly. So the, the sensors themselves are so inexpensive, even the, the Bluetooth LE, uh, I'm sure, you know, that chip costs next to nothing. Um, you know, but I think the the second phase, I think what we're going to see here is, is those things start to work together. I mean, you can, you can only go on so long making the Fitbit, right? So you can make the Fitbit, then you can make device B, you can make device C, and maybe they talk to each other. But when this really starts to open up is when everything starts to talk together. You know, the, the Fitbit, it, it knows, you know, it's talking to the base station on a fairly regular basis when I'm at home. So it actually knows when I'm at home. My thermostat, um, I actually have a, you know, Wi-Fi thermostats. They're not the Nest, but the, the Nest I know has a motion sensor on it. It has a couple different ways of telling if you're at home, but there's no reason why that that thing shouldn't use that signal from the Fitbit. Um, you know, it doesn't have to talk to it directly, but potentially through the cloud and it should be able to use that as a signal for occupancy. Also my phone and the, the Bluetooth LE on that or, or GPS or, you know, any number of factors. So it doesn't necessarily have to go off of one factor. I might go for a walk, leave my phone at home, take my Fitbit with me, or I might forget my Fitbit. I'm sure you've had a day where, you know, you forgot your Fitbit at home. And I, I think the, you know, like I said, the, the next big phase in all of this is, is things. Yeah. Um, Satya Nadella talked about this. He talked about this ambient intelligence and that's sort of a, um, you know, sort of a generic phrase, but I think part of it is, is sort of this automation that we're talking about. And then I think slowly we're, we're going to figure out the standards for things to talk to each other or, you know, maybe to use the, the cloud as sort of the, the bus 
for for most of this. And I think that's a tricky part because a lot of uh, places uh, or, or big corporations like Google and Microsoft, they want to have the standard. Mm-hmm. And and every company wants their stuff to be the standard. And it's agreeing upon how do we communicate? How do we share this between things? Right. And and, and until we do, it's going to be very difficult to get some of those situations, which we, we technically have the ability to accomplish right now. It's just nobody can agree to to talk the same language. So I'm going to, I'm going to defend Microsoft and, you know, just a, um, you know, a, a word I, I, I do work there. So maybe I am a little bit biased, but I, I want to put some facts out there. So, um, as far as, at least as far as Azure is concerned, which is really our big play in the IOT world, I, you know, I think there's other components involved as well, but in general, our strategy is to work with anything and everything. So if you look at the Azure service bus, which is, um, you know, a way of ingesting data and moving data around. It supports, you know, all the open standards. So it supports AMQP. Uh, um, Clemens Vasters had an article on his blog about MQTT. He's not really a fan of the protocol. I shouldn't say he's not a fan. He just had some criticisms of of the protocol, um, you know, for for the for the scenarios that he had in mind. Um, nonetheless, we're going to support that. You know, at the end of the day, we're going to support that protocol. And uh, HTTP, you know, whatever the standard protocols are, we sort of have a commitment to, to um, you know, implementing those protocols. So we are being open about it. I think there's there's some companies, like you mentioned, that are, you know, they they want to own it. I don't think that's the the secret to success here. I, I think it's so difficult to own it. We know that you know Apple, they're sort of the kings of of owning it, and I I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, they haven't been able to do that with the Apple TV. I, I just don't see that many households buying a house full of Apple products. And I do know that they're, they sort of have this open initiative. They really want the iPhone to sort of be the hub of all the home automation stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how well that hooks in with everything else. We'll have to see, you know, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure how, how much to trust them at this point. You know, that might've been just a, a, a short gesture. So we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah, when it, in regards to Apple, everybody seems excited to do things for the iPhone, mm-hmm. but we have to remember Apple has tried time and time again to, um, you know, with their uh, cloud initiatives, and they've failed quite a few times mm-hmm. in that area. So, um, if it's a cloud-based thing, Apple ha- Apple hasn't had the best track history. But right. when it comes to integrating things with their devices they do know how to do that and they do know how to do that well and get people on board with it. So that that's going to be interesting to see how well they can get everybody on board with their interfaces that, you know, they've recently announced. Okay. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we always see some of the, the slickest looking interfaces on there and, you know, part of it is the, the, the extreme control over, you know, the screen sizes and things like that. I think people, people tend to put a lot more, you know, polish on those interfaces. Um, and they, they try to make them, you know, look as, as slick as possible. And, you know, just because of their numbers, they tend to get a lot of the features too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think they're, I think they are going to excel in the, you know, in the immediate future, as far as, as the interface for, for how you do these things. But I think it's going to get way more complicated than that, because I think part of the secret here is in things that don't have an interface. It's, it is that I don't, I don't want to keep saying ambient intelligence, but that, um, you know, sort of, things, things just working well together that you don't even have to think about, you know, the, just your, your house, uh, you know, I keep coming back to that example where your house just knows whether or not you're home. 
it knows, you know, the temperatures that you like and, and, uh, it, it's able to optimize for, for energy and it's able to optimize for your preferences. So one thing, one thing, uh, that I wanted to talk about in regards to IOT is project Reykjavik, which I have uh, on this blog post, I have a bunch of links to some, some different places, but there was a presentation by the Azure service bus team. And I thought this was, this was pretty neat. Um, there's a, um, a design here basically for how devices can get information up into Azure. So uh, the ingestion side of it. And the concept is that each device has sort of an inbox outbox so that you don't have to, it, it sort of isolates the security of these individual devices so they can push messages up to Azure or, you know, up to the cloud. And then they can also receive information from the cloud. And it really simplifies the security model and a number of other things. Um, the best person to talk about this is uh, Clemens Vasters. And if you actually listen to, it was um, an episode of .NET Rocks. It was episode 990. And again, I have a, I have a link to that in my blog and we'll put it in the show notes. But um, he, he walks through this and he talks about how, you know, Germany wants to have, you know, every, BM, I think it's like BMW or some other company. I'm not sure which one it was. Uh, maybe a couple of car companies. They want to have every car be able to, you know, relay tele telemetry up to the cloud and then do processing on that and do a whole bunch of interesting things. So um, let's see, what else do we have on IoT? Um, oh, and after I wrote this post, so again, my 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 feelings on it were that IoT really it it sprung up because of because of cost. You know, I, I just seems like we're at a totally different um, level today as, as, as to where we can, you know, how we can, how cheap we can get these sensors and then also how inexpensive we can build things like interfaces on the web. I mean, it's, you saw, I saw a whole bunch of vendors there that had these interfaces for controlling devices. And, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where you can just, you know, grab some kind of JavaScript framework, you know, like angular JS, and it's pretty easy to build up these interfaces. And now with a lot of these backend technologies, it's pretty easy to actually connect these devices so I just think that, you know, the combination of a couple of different things has really just taken this to the next level. And now everybody's thinking about this. There are, there were companies there that were actually named, you know, like internet of things They you know, they actually had that in their name. So I think we're, I just think we're, we're going to see this, this big acceleration now around this and a lot of people kind of working on the same page. Yeah. I find that interesting that people, uh, you know, have companies with that in there. I mean, to me, <laughs> this seems a very early, you know, name for this. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure there, you know, there were companies that, that use the cloud word, right. Whenever they, whenever they started. Um, mm -hmm. and I guess that paid off, um, internet of things. I know that there's been some, you know, flux around that. I heard, I heard a lot of people talking there about IOE or internet of everything. Um, so you know, I don't, I don't know if that's going to start to gain traction over IOT. I, I think, I think IOT has been used enough now that, uh, it should stick around. And mm -hmm. I think it's going to, it's, you know, like I said, Brent wrote a, a follow-up post to this and I think he, he actually defined, you know, what, what IOT is today. And what'll be interesting to see is, you know, after three years, five years, 10 years, when somebody says, this is IOT, you know, what is that going to mean to everybody? Cause I think by then we'll have a sort of a unified definition. I would be like, Oh, I know exactly what that is. I can explain that. And, uh, it's, it's, it's going to, it's going to be very interesting because it's going to really revolutionize a lot of industries and it, it does have a lot of uh, residential implications as well. So I think we've, uh, I think we've talked that one to death. What do you think? 
Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sound so uh, negative there, man. Okay, so uh, let's talk about phone news. So what do we got in the news around phone? All right, so this is something I, cr- I ran across this week. And um, because we had Anthony Russell on two episodes ago, he was talking about, you know, one of the things that, you know, he tries to do is learn something when he builds an app. And one of the things that um, he was trying to learn when building a particular app is how to, you know, wire in authentication with like Facebook and Google and, you know, Microsoft accounts and how, how that works. And, um, so, um, like I said, I ran across this and what it is, is it's an actual windows phone project. Okay. Uh, it's the entire code. It's on code.msdn.microsoft.com. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, by, a a windows or a C sharp MVP, Sarah MG Silva. Okay. And what she did is, um, she's using the, Google APIs, the Facebook SDKs and the live SDK to go out and, you know, implement, uh, um, authentication mm-hmm. using those different services in the windows phone format, uh, using MVVM. And, uh, it gives a, a clear example, you know, how you can, uh, kind of reuse some of the code. So, you know, you're calling the same kind of API, no matter what the backend API is. And it's, it's really well done. It's a, a really short, um, a small uh, solution, mm-hmm. but it's, 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 like I said, a really good way to learn how to do this. And, uh, I figured a lot more people, uh, would like to check it out. So we'll have links to this in the show notes as well. That's pretty cool. Uh, authentication is, is always a little bit of a hassle. I think part of the reason for that is we've, we've been in sort of these, um, I know it's been a year, a couple of years, but, but we're sort of in the, we're sort of the, the authentication methods are starting to uh, mature. So it, it was a little bit of a, a mess back in the early days. And I think we're finally figuring out how to get this right and authenticate, you know, against these providers. We have OAuth two, and we have, you know, a, a, a lot of different providers now that we can authenticate against. So I was playing around with, um, the identity foundation recently in .NET, you know, so working with this for like a, a um, MVC project and they've, they've made it really easy to, to, to do in uh, MVC. Have you played around with authentication in MVC um, in implementing all those different providers? I have, but not with identity. Okay. Uh, Cause what you end up doing, actually I have, you know, update two for visual studio 2013 and you just create a new project and you tell it you want to use authentication. And I think it's a lot like this project here in that, it has a section of code that says like uncomment this, if you want to use Google authentication and then. Um, Yeah. And this project it's put in your secret API keys. Yeah. So it's basically the same thing. You, you uncomment the Google section and then it says like, you know, Google API key one and then whatever, you know, client secret or whatever the, the two parameters are, you just fill those in and literally the, the application then uh, allows for that, that uh, identity provider. And I went through and I tried that. And it was just drop dead simple. So uh, I think we're finally at the the stage where we have examples out there. If you have to implement identity, if you have to, you know, authenticate against other identity projects, always look for something like this. You know, don't try to reinvent the wheel here. You, you, that is not something you want to do. So yeah. Uh, another thing I would just kind of, you know, tell people who aren't familiar with this area is to look up the definitions for authorization and authentication and the differences between the two. Right. Be- because those are very key concepts when you're talking in, about this field and something that a lot of people get mixed up mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, times that uh, people mix the two up and what they are I'm not going to get into that right now. Cause that, that that's an entire topic in and of itself, but 
if you're going to look at this route and you want a, a little bit deeper understanding, you know, get used to those terms and how they're, uh, how they're used. Okay. One thing I don't see here is the Azure Active Directory. It doesn't support that type of authentication. I'm sure that's coming soon. That's, uh, that's gaining a lot of popularity. So moving on, what else you got for me? All right. The next one is uh, something a little bit more fun. There was a, uh, uh, a video that I caught on Twitter that showed uh, what basically somebody had done is they took an iPhone and they strapped it to a car tire mm -hmm. and uh, wrote an app for it that would, would take some video. But they had, uh, using the sensors, uh, kind of straightened out the video. So it, even though the, it was, the phone was spinning uh, with the tire, you would try to get the, the clearest, straightest, horizontally aligned uh, image that it could. And if you look at it, there's some really interesting artifacts in the video because how the iPhone camera works is it doesn't just take, you know, 30 snapshots a second. Right. It scans from top to bottom. So you're going to get some artifacting. You see the uh, the horizon in the back. It, it bends and bows mm -hmm. as it's moving along. It's still staying straight, but just the way that the technology works, it's changing. Yeah, this and, this video was it was almost unbelievable to me. I, I I do not get how they did this at, at that rate of speed. It was just, it was incredible. And, and what's really cool is uh, they also show that, you know, they were catching this information streamed to a MacBook live as well. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if the, I suppose the phone storage could keep up with it, but the, man, the, the rate of processing. So were they, do you know if they were sending the raw camera stream over to the laptop and then doing the processing there? They didn't really specify that. Okay. I suspect but, they were. Yeah, but one of the things that I just kind of, you know, wanted to pull out of this is, you know, a lot of times, you know, I see developers that they want to learn things, they want to try things, but they become afraid for some reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, don't ever feel that what you want to do is too stupid or too dumb, because I'm sure there's a lot of people out there would be like, why would you ever strap an iPhone right. to a car? Like, you know, without seeing the video, just because the video is really cool. Yeah. But if you just explain it to somebody, you're like, you're going to do what with your iPhone? Mm -hmm. Um. But, you know, it, it's it's a really fun thing to just go out there and do something and have it work. I mean, it doesn't have to be as elaborate as strapping a phone to a car. I mean, it could be, you know, hey, you know, let me hack together some sort of, uh, you know, you know, API reading thing in a console app. Mm -hmm. Console apps aren't sexy, but they really help you, you know, learn and 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 practice ideas that you haven't done before. So, Carl, tell us about the greatest application you ever wrote that was a so, console app. So the greatest application I ever wrote, uh, for those of you who don't ha uh, know the background on me and Jason, we used to work together and, um, we, uh, uh, worked in a building where we had this really nice outdoor, um, uh, dining area up, uh, that was open during the summer up on the third floor. Yeah. And, and but we, but we live in Wisconsin. Yeah. So we live in Wisconsin, <laughs> so we don't, and was, we're right on Lake Michigan. So we never knew if it was nice out or not. And because we're too lazy being developers, um, uh, what I did is I tapped into the local weather API and pulled all the weather statistics, the temperature, the humidity, the wind speed, the direction, you know, all that stuff mm -hmm. um, processed, you know, what everybody kind of told me it's nice enough or not. And um, the app would make the decision whether we would go outside and eat or not. So it was a console app. It pulled in the API, processed everything. And if it was good, it sent out an email to everybody on the email list saying, Hey, it's nice outside. Let's go eat. Yeah. I always got a kick out of that. That was, that was pretty cool though. So yeah. we, we knew exactly what days and, 
you know, that's sort of what we were talking about before. It just, it just sort of magically gave you the information that you wanted when you wanted it. And, uh, out of that, I mean, you, you, you learn how to process weather data, um, consume APIs, yeah, send, send, you know, send email, although, you know, we do that quite a bit, but, um, you know, nonetheless, some of these stupid projects, you, you know, you learn some of those pieces out of. And, and there's a lot of stuff that I didn't put into it, but, you know, inspired conversations with other people, you know, could you have it? So it would send out, you know, if somebody didn't like humidity, that it would give them a different result. So maybe we wouldn't invite James um, to the weather deck because he was a little bit more sensitive to humidity or we wouldn't invite Jason because he liked it warmer or colder. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we talked about different ways to do all of that and to analyze that and even have people provide their own feedback and interpret, you know, just giving a thumbs up or thumbs down. You know, if you have 20 variables, how do you know which one was good or bad? So, you know, it's, it's all those little things that you discuss by just doing something silly as, Hey, should we eat outside or not? Yeah, we didn't mention this in the news, but, um, you know, one thing that, that Microsoft announced this uh, would have been this week was this um, Azure ML, this Azure machine learning. And this just made me think of it because it's a, uh, you know, it's machine learning as a service. And what you what you can do is is feed that information in and then you can create a model off of that. So it's doing, you know, basically what you're talking about. So you you sort of train it saying, you know, here here is the satisfaction of each person and hear all the different inputs, you know, and what, what contributes to what, and, and then you create a model and then you can uh, put that into place. So that, that just made me, uh, it made me think of that platform. So, you know, you could incorporate something like that in. Exactly. Um, yeah, that, that iPhone video, that was interesting. I, I don't get how they got the phone to actually stay on the wheels, but, um, they actually had, um, it was a kind where you, um, it wasn't like, it had a, a hub capper on it or anything. It was yeah. like the aluminum alloy okay. and they actually had it like not zip tied, but like really long, uh, you know, bread twist ties or something Okay, that they, uh, you know, they twisted tied fairly tight. Cause I, I just know, you know, from, um, you know, you put like an unbalanced balanced CD in your CD drive and it explodes or you're on uh, a merry go round, you know, and you have somebody on there like, the, yeah, the centrifugal force just seems really high. I mean, they, they went about 30 miles an hour, but yeah. um, that seems like you'd have a lot of force at that speed. Well, either way, I, I, I think it was cool. If mm -hmm. not just to, you know, inspiring, you know, discussion around it. So, yep. So videos in the show notes. Uh, so what do we got for web news? So um, this week, IE announced their IE developer channel. Mm -hmm. And what this is, is very similar to uh, Google Chrome Canary. Um, you can get, you know, uh, iterative, iterative builds of the next version of IE on a regular cadence. Mm -hmm. So in this version, there's, um, things like, um, uh, new ways to automate your tests with WebDriver, um, using your Xbox controller, um, with IE, with IE. Okay. Um, that's what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a few other things in the, uh, the dev tools. Um, we'll put a link to it there, but um, it installs side by side with your existing IE. So, you know, previous versions of IE always kind of blew away the previous ones. Mm -hmm. This one you can have side by side. Yeah, I installed um, it. That's, that's pretty awesome that, that I, it, it doesn't, you know, disrupt your normal browser. Yeah. Another thing is it's a, actually a full browser mm -hmm. because I remember in the past, like when IE9 was coming out and they were saying how awesome it was going to be. And they're like, oh, try it out. 
and then you download something and well it wasn't a full browser it was just enough of an uh of an application to show one of the you know a few of the features that they cared about right so so this is you know them pushing out what they have and um it's going to be um updated on a regular beta, uh, basis i don't know exactly how often that will be but um i'd say this is huge in microsoft just opening up and saying hey this is what what's coming out next yeah and you can start to test your sites against it now you know my experience across microsoft too is that you know being on this faster release cadence your your feedback counts more than you know more than ever before because it used to be if you know go back 10 years and if you had some feedback um you know just because of the development cycles i mean just this was a lot of companies doing this if you have a three-year development cycle it's going to take at least three years for your feedback to get into there now i mean conceivably you make you know you you give some feedback and it could be in the next build potentially so you get it in a couple weeks you try it out you know give some feedback other people give feedback and then it could stay in that code base yep and you can get this right now at devchannel.modern.ie okay cool and what else you got for me all right uh the next thing is um uh a newsletter that uh is being put out by nick landry so uh um he's at the age of mobility.com okay and um he's uh doing a, a flipboard magazine so this works in on the web it works there's a flipboard app for uh windows art uh modern metro whatever yep uh and he's basically collects you know windows platform articles so that's covers you know azure phone uh metro desktop you know all those things if it's related to windows and developing stuff you know he'll curate these articles and put them in there mm -hmm. um so for anybody who's just looking for more avenues of information um uh, this is a great resource flipboard's always a great app i, I like how well done it is you know how good it looks right so is this a guy we should have on the show sometime? Uh, sure. Uh, I know he currently works for Microsoft. He was a, he's a Nokia ambassador. And uh, previously before coming to Microsoft, he was uh, a Windows phone or Windows mobile MB MVP. Okay. So he's definitely a guy who knows his stuff. Okay. And he's been passionate in this field for quite a few years. So. Well, we'll talk to him. Give him, we'll give him a voice. Sure. Okay, cool. And then uh, what do we got here? Linux and Hyper-V. What? Yeah. So apparently um, there's been some code that's been going into Linux to make it compatible and working under Hyper-V properly. Okay. Because I think, you know, Linux, I, my understanding was it always worked. It worked on Hyper-V, right? I know it worked on VMware. I guess I, I never ran Linux specifically on Hyper-V. What was your understanding? Well, I think that it may have worked, you know, you can get to a desktop and kind of do things, but mm -hmm. it may not have been full functionality. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you go to the, the link to the blog post we have, the first line says, we've been doing a lot of work to increase the functionality of Linux on top of Hyper-V. Mm -hmm. So it looks like Microsoft's been contributing to the oh. Linux source code and, and they've been just kind of allowing the full support of Hyper-V uh, in Linux. Mm -hmm. Well, this is running... This is running Linux virtual machines on Hyper-V. So the, uh, so I think what, what this is talking about, you know, with, with VMware, you know, you could run Linux in there, you could run uh, Windows in VMware. 
And, and what ends up happening is there's a whole bunch of special functionality, like copying files in, or, you know, having it actually do like graceful shutdowns of the, of the operating system. And with those, with those virtualization technologies, the, the quality of the tools matter. So I, so what I'm reading here, the, what I'm taking out of this is that there was code actually, you know, pushed back to Linux that makes it so that Hyper-V can interact with a little bit better in it. So yep. Linux will just, these, these editions of Linux will run better in Hyper-V. So if you click on some of those individual uh, distros, mm -hmm. it's basically a, a, a grid that shows like, hey, it supports jumbo frames in Hyper-V or oh, live cool. migration or VHD uh, resizing. So yep. a, a lot of those, you know, it may have worked, but you can do a little bit more of those advanced features. Perfect. That's that's always good. I mean, we're being real open with uh, supporting, you know, Linux, all the, you know, the different variants of Linux within Azure. And obviously Azure is built on, you know, has a lot of shared technology with Hyper-V. Um, so I think this is just, you know, showing that commitment to all these different operating systems. And And what's interesting too is that code from Microsoft, you know, there was actually code that Microsoft wrote that's going back into Linux and I think we're seeing more and more of that as well. I know with the Hadoop project, you know, that was, it served up as HD Insight in Azure, but a lot of, you know, Microsoft wrote a lot of code for Hadoop that, you know, actually got into that code base. So that's, which is, which is great to see. Okay. We ready for the Azure pick of the week? Sure. So this week I wanted to talk about a CDN. So um, I just kind of wanted to let everybody know what a CDN is and how it works in Azure. So a CDN is known as a content distribution network. And, you know, you, you probably end up using these on a fairly regular basis inadvertently. But whenever you develop a website, you know, it's sort of an afterthought. So what a CDN does is it 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 gives you, you, you put a file into a CDN and I'll, I'll kind of explain the mechanics of that. But what ends up happening is whenever the file is served from the CDN, that file actually goes out to a whole bunch of different edge servers, you know, servers that are geographically distributed and it will serve, you know, assets, the different images, JavaScript files, CSS files from a local server, you know, to the user. So the connection, you know, over to Europe or Australia or any of those countries from the U S you know, it's, it's slower than actually being here. So what you do is you put a server in Australia and whenever somebody from Australia requests, you know, your images, it will pull them from the CDN. It'll just pull it over one time and then they'll be cached locally on that endpoint. So there's a huge advantage of doing this. And a lot of people now, you know, with things like jQuery, Angular, a lot of these frameworks, there are uh, common CDN setups. So you have Google hosting, um, you know, some of these JavaScript files, Microsoft hosts some of them. Um, there's a whole bunch of third-party locations that host these. And the, the advantage in that case with these libraries is that when a person goes to, you know, they go to the first site, the first website, uh, you know, let's call it site A, and it's using jQuery. They'll pull down jQuery onto their machine. Whenever they go to site B, if they're, if site, if both site A and site B are using the same CDN, what'll end up happening is the browser says, well, I already have that file. I already have it cached. So it doesn't have to download it again. So you can also save your users a ton of time downloading all of the, uh, you know, these various files. So the other advantage of this is that the, the CDN scales automatically. So you put your images in there, you know, your, your, diff, your various assets. And if, if you have a whole bunch of people hitting your website, your website only has to serve up, you know, the web page that, that it generates. And then all the other assets come from a different server. So it relieves that load from, from your server. Also HTTP connections, 
are limited in your browser. So your browser typically is only going to make two connections. I think in newer browsers, there's some uh, ways around that where I think they'll, they'll exceed that limit. But traditionally the web server will only make, or the uh, browser will only make two connections to your web server. So if you have a web page and let's say 10 images to download, it will, it will download your web page the first time. Once it starts to get that and sees the images and the other files that need to get downloaded, it will then make two additional connections, pull down two of the images. It'll reuse those connections, you know, pull down two again. So it's always, everything's coming through basically two, two pipes, you know, two parallel pipes. Whenever you're using a CDN, because those are all different servers, it can actually pull down, you know, more than two at a time. It could be pulling down, you know, the HTML from your server, and then it could be pulling, um, you know, from different CDN locations simultaneously. So sometimes this is a way to speed things up as well, um, and, you know, from that regard. So the reason I want to talk about this and the reason it's an Azure pick of the week is if you are developing an Azure application, um, a website or a PaaS solution, or you're even, you know, hosting it in IaaS, what you can do is you can put your, um, as part of your build process, your deployment process, you can actually put your assets into blob storage and then you can basically turn on a CDN and it will pull from blob storage. So the first time somebody accesses, you know, an image from Australia, as an example, it, the CDN edge location will see that it's not in the cache. It will go pull it from your blob storage into the CDN. And then the second person that comes along, it will get it from that uh, edge location. That's really easy to do. You can also point uh, your CDN against uh, a certain folder that's in your website if you're hosting it with something like PaaS, right? So you you upload your your uh, uh, website and you put all your your content in a folder called CDN and it will automatically pull it from there. And I, that's really a nice option because you don't even have to think about it at that point. The only, yeah, that's really slick. Right. The only thing that you have to do is you have to you know point your web page to the CDN, right? So your your links all have to point toward that. So there's different ways you can do that. There's re, there's page rewriting that you can do. Um, otherwise, you know, there's different utilities you can actually use in the MVC page. And I know we, we were talking before the show and you were saying that you can also do things where if the CDN fails, you can fall back to, you know, a local resource or something like that. And so, yeah. and you've done that in the past. Yes. Yeah. So that's like the best of both worlds. Cause it'll use, you know, that, that fast download. If it can, if you're on a plane and don't have Wi-Fi, or, you know, you're wherever, um, and if you're, you know, if you're working on your, your website, then it can pull those things down locally, uh, which is, which is pretty slick. Or if there's just some issue in general with that CDN being down, you can always use your local files as the fallback. Yeah. I have actually just inserted a surprise news item that you reminded me <laughs> of with this whole talk. I, so, I saw this one too. I wasn't sure if we want to mention it. Go ahead. This, so, was um, interesting. so this week, um, Microsoft ran out of their allotted IPv4 addresses mm -hmm. in Azure. Yep. So in response to that, they have, uh, or US-based IPv4 addresses. So they, addresses are allocated or in a geographic region, and a lot of people use that as a way to kind of do a simplistic geo-lookup uh, geo uh, to find out where you are. But that could start breaking very soon uh, because... Microsoft, since they ran out, they're using some of their Brazil IP addresses in Azure. Okay. So you could, you know, all of a sudden say, hey, it says I'm in Brazil. Um, Microsoft's actually working on on getting those addresses reassigned to the U.S., but they're still registered in Brazil. 
Okay. So, so at least they'll locate to uh, a U.S. based location. Okay. So it makes but, you wonder, you know, I, I really don't know a whole lot about how the DNS works in this case, but is it a good practice to look up that IP address and try to figure out the, the location of it? I know CDNs use that. So the, the question is, is there, is there a better way to do it? Are people just, you know, well, it's not a DNS issue. It, mm-hmm. It's really when people try to use those geo, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways to try to determine your location. Mm-hmm. And usually the last resort is by IP address lookup. Right. And um, like I said, Microsoft is working on getting these, you know, at least saying, hey, you're in the U.S. But in the meantime, there, there's some people that have noticed um, that it says that they're in Brazil. Interesting. And, and one of the things I, th- I, I think that's kind of interesting, you know, is, I mean, it, it's been well known to people uh, who deal a lot with these uh, uh, global uh, network addresses that we're running really low on these. Mm-hmm. And um, that the fallback to this is to go to IPv6, which IPv4 sits in very nicely, which basically gives an address to every, you know, atom in the known universe. Right, right. So um, there's a much bigger range to pull from. However, just because a lot of devices don't support them, you know, the transition to IPv6 has been very slow. Yeah, I think it's been going on for like 10 years and, and you know, most things are supporting IPv6, but... I've actually, it seems like we've been going backwards in the past couple of years. I was, was watching, um, I was watching a podcast and there was somebody on there talking about IPv4 and sort of the ways that we've mitigated it. And it was, you know, I think like five, 10 years ago, they were saying, Hey, you know, the sky is falling. We're going to run out of addresses like this year. Um, they were, they were predicting that and it, it never happened. It never happened. And I, I think, you know, through natting and these other ways that, that we've sort of mitigated it. And whenever he was talking, he sort of gave me the impression that, like this is just a non-issue now, so I'm curious, you know, if if this is a real if this is a real issue or not. I mean, there, well, there's so many people that want a public IP. Maybe we're just maybe we have less people that, you know, there's there were people that said I need one, and it's like ah, oh, you don't actually need one. And they're like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't actually well, need one. The big problem isn't you know that people want them. It's that when uh, they first allocated them, like uh, companies like HP, they got like entire huge blocks of them, like full, you know, top level blocks, you know, dot four blocks. And so that would essentially gave them like 32 million or yeah, 2 billion addresses mm-hmm. or 32 million out of the 2 billion, I should say. And, you know, they've kind of, some of the, those companies have hoarded those for a very long time. So, you know, um, the internet association for assigned names and numbers have been trying to, you know, pull those uh, back where they can, but some of those places have been a little bit more resistant than others. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So sounds, sounds like uh <laughs> shuffling of the deck chairs as Leo Laporte always says. <laughs> nope. They were just moving things around. Okay. What do you got for your app of the week? Uh, this week's app of the week is for windows phone developers. It's an, a windows phone app called dev center. And what this is, is you sign in with your developer account and it gives you uh, graphs with your daily download rates, uh, crashes. You can dive into individual apps and see, you know, the graphs for your individual uh, apps. You can check on reviews uh, per app. You know, in this app, uh, you can see, you know, how many stars have been uh, given. Uh, you know, all sorts of t- statistics. You know, downloads by country. You can really kind of dig into uh, your your statistics. And for anybody who does have a published app, um, 
I would say this is a must download. It's free. And um, I look at it every day. This is awesome. So does this work with uh, Windows 8 apps then too, or is it just phone apps? Just phone apps. Even though the store has been unified now? It, they've only been uh, merged kind of on the front end, oh, the just, highest levels. So they're, they're, okay. they're in the process of fully merging, but the, it's not completely there yet. Wah, wah. Okay. Darn, I don't know. I need a phone app then. Okay, fine. My tracking app is going to be a phone app too then. Make it universal. That's what, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Um, okay. So that was dev center. We have anything else on the list? Nope. We've covered her this week. Well, that was a quick show. That's all right though. So if you have feedback for the show, make sure you email feedback at MS dev show. You checking that Carl? Yes, I am. Okay. And uh, you can find me at ytechie.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. And I'm at Carl Schweitzer and you can also see me on wpdevguy.com. 